Inside the IC is sponsored by Microsoft Federal, the choice for classified missions. Welcome to Inside the IC, sponsored by Microsoft Federal. Now your host, Justin Doubleday. Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guests today are two former U.S. intelligence officials, Barbara Alexander and Elliot Jardines. They're announcing the establishment of the OSINT Foundation. Thanks for being here, guys. Thank you. It's a Thank you. privilege. Thanks. All right. Yeah. And, and OSINT, of course, stands for Open Source Intelligence. So, Barbara, if I could just start with you, tell me a little bit about the big picture here. What is the OSINT Foundation and why is this coming together right now? Well, thanks, Justin. Uh, the OSINT Foundation is a professional organization that will launch on Monday, August 1st. It is a nonprofit 501c3 organization that has been established to support the OSINT practitioner community, specifically those individuals who do open source intelligence for the intelligence community primarily. We welcome people from academia and industry as well, but our focus is to help professionalize the OSINT discipline for those people who are working on it across the intelligence community. Got it. And Elliot, why is this coming together now here in August of 2022? OSINT seems to be having a bit of a moment. Is that kind of, is it kind of tied to that or why is this coming together now? Well, this has been a long-term effort uh, on our part. Uh, Barbara and I worked together at the Department of Homeland Security a number of years ago, um, and we had many discussions with regards to the need for uh, a professional association to help advance the discipline. We actually began the OSINT Foundation a couple years ago, uh, but with the pandemic all of the challenges uh, with that. It took a long time to get uh, the uh, State Corporation Commission to give us our charter and the uh, Internal Revenue Service to get us that 501c3. So part of it has been simply the, the complexities of dealing with a uh, post-COVID uh, environment. But uh, the, the other issue, I think the, the driving force uh, has been that there is still a lack of maturity in the discipline in the sense that, you know, if you were interviewing someone about uh, human intelligence or human and they talked about humint, you probably would shorten that interview quite a bit. Right? <laughs> if you were talking to someone about signals intelligence and they kept referring to it as sigint, uh, likewise, right? So every profession has a jargon. It's, its own jargon. And um, one example of where we have some ways to go with open source is just the pronunciation, right? So other disciplines don't have three pronunciations, but you tend to hear people mention it as OSINT, OZINT with a Z, or OZINT. Right? And I like to joke that OZINT is the type of intelligence exploitation <clears throat> that the munchkins did on the yellow brick road to determine how many flying monkeys the Wicked Witch of the West had. Right? That's, uh, that's emblematic of some of the, the problems, right? It's OSINT with a soft S, and um, the discipline has many things like that that are still somewhat in flux. There's a lot of discussion about, well, what's the, what's the right definition for open source? We don't have those discussions in any of the other intelligence disciplines because they're codified in law. And it comes as a big surprise to a lot of people that OSINT definition is codified in law. Hmm. And it's codified in public law 109-153. And when did that come into law? It was around 2006, 2007. Okay. So right so, around the time you were establishing the, the open source center, at DNI, if I'm not mistaken. It's 2005 is when the DNI Open Source Center was uh, was established. It was just a little bit after that. Okay. Um, and uh, it was an effort on the Hill led by uh, Congressman Rob Simmons uh, of uh, the 2nd Congressional District in Connecticut. Uh, and so he worked that into the defense authorization bill 
So that definition is codified in law. Um, and there's discussions uh, right now. The Hill has asked the ODNI, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, and the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security, USDI, to propose a new definition for open source. Um, but in the interim, there is a legal definition for open source intelligence. And so we have seen lots recently, lots of studies and uh, opinions with regards to open source. And some, some of the reason we established the foundation is the frustration of having folks who have no background in open source speak for the open source community. A number of studies have been done and no one would dream of doing a study on signals intelligence or human intelligence and not include people who actually have experience doing it, but yet somehow other people who don't have experience with open source seem to feel like it's appropriate for them to, to speak on behalf of the community. We also find in our experience dealing with industry that our industry partners talk a lot about OSINT in terms of tools, which are very valuable, which are necessary, but aren't addressing the human activity, the human tradecraft, and procedures that need to be done. And as we look forward to young people coming into the intelligence community, to be able to provide a baseline understanding of what OSINT is, for the community, this is a great opportunity. It's one of the few disciplines that you can actually do outside of the government. Uh, you don't need to, uh, to be cleared if you are uh, in academia, and a lot of universities are starting intelligence studies programs. And so this will enable us to, again, open the eyes of incoming professionals as to what OSINT is and how it's used uh, across, the, uh, across the community. Well, there's a lot to unpack there, but I did want to ask, and I think this is an important element of this conversation, what is the definition of OSINT? You mentioned it's, it's codified into law, and then, of course, the DNI and the intelligence agencies take that definition a little bit further in order to put it into practice. But from the foundation's perspective, do you folks have a kind of hard and fast definition of what OSINT should be within the intelligence community? Yeah. So referring to you know public law 105.1.109.153, that definition would be the one we would use to paraphrase it in a straightforward manner. It's publicly available information that's captured, exploited, analyzed validated, analyzed, and disseminated to meet a specific intelligence requirement. So many folks are doing publicly available information, PAI exploitation, for commercial purposes, for law enforcement, due diligence type investigations, protective intelligence type work. Right? Those typically fall outside of the intelligence community's definition of open source intelligence because they're not meeting the, an intelligence need. They're not answering an intelligence need for policymakers or decision makers, military commanders. Um, and so that's an important distinction. We're not interested in, well, we are interested in, uh, in broader applications, PAI exploitation, but we cannot, given that we're a volunteer organization, look at all of those other areas, right? So we're focused solely on the intelligence community. And so we have lots of respect for folks who do PAI exploitation outside of the intelligence community, but that's not really the focus of what the foundation is looking to do, primarily because we have to be able to bite off a small enough chunk we can actually chew. And so if we were a cast of thousands we might look at opening up that aperture to include other things, but the reality is, um, as a professional association, we're laser-focused on helping the discipline within the intelligence community. So a couple other things that I would hasten to add. 
with regards to publicly available, previous definition that the intelligence community used had a great amplification where they'd say it was publicly available information, in other words, that a it would be reasonable for a member of the general public to gain access to through request, observation, or purchase. And so there's a, a lot of misattribution of OSINT, that term, to things, and I'll see folks say, well, we have unique data sets of publicly available information available nowhere else. Well, okay, if it's publicly available information that's available nowhere else, we have a definitional problem. And so it's reasonable expectation right, that you could gain it through open sources. So the open is a critical component uh, there, and um, sometimes the community gets a bad rap for activities that uh, are labeled as open source, but are clearly not open source. So that's a, a critical distinction we're, we're trying to make. This is what's considered inbound, publicly available. If you're doing something that is available nowhere else, it's not publicly available, it's not OSINT. Got it. And, and that, I mean, that's an interesting point because um, within that definition, available for purchase, that would be available for purchase by anyone, me included, not having a, a special government security clearance or anything like that. You know, commercial satellite imagery, some of that is subject to certain requirements. Other images are available for, for anyone. How do you draw the line there? What are some examples of where, you know, something might not be open source that's mislabeled as open source versus something that is actually open source. Any data that you pay for that is restricted to only the government is not open source. Right. Right. So that caveat of reasonably a member of the general public could reasonably be expected to gain access to through request, observation, or purchase. If it's unique data sources, or things like ad tech data that cost tens of thousands of dollars per month, mm -hmm. um, then one could make the argument that if buying it costs you $50,000 a month, it's probably not publicly available. Um, and so that's a critical component. There are unique data sets. There have always been unique data sets. And so it's a, it's a question, but many of the concerns about civil liberties revolve around some of those things, right? As we move towards things like the ubiquitous nature of license plate readers uh, and uh, cameras, right? where those feeds go, where does that data captured? Um, that's not, uh, while driving your car is public activity, that database of who came through this intersection at what time is not publicly available generally. If it were readily available to the general public, then it'd be publicly available. Otherwise, right, it's a restricted source, a governmental source, or a commercial firm. Right. So that issue ultimately of right, what's the dollar amount, right, ultimately is a good question. Uh, and that's something that, that there is no official determination on. Got it. You know, I wanted to ask, each of you have extensive experience in this area. Barbara, you know, you wore several hats in analyst positions and then leadership positions within the IC, most recently, I think, at the Department of Homeland Security's Intelligence and Analysis Division um, before moving to industry. What has your experience been with OSINT over your career that kind of especially got you to this point where you're now helping establish, leading the establishment of this foundation? Well, I entered the intelligence community a long time ago, and um, I was uh, a European uh, military political analyst for the Defense Intelligence Agency. Um, my OSINT data came in a courier pouch about once a month. I would get stacks of the Italian newspaper Corriere della Sera, and I would get um, a weekly orange cover foreign broadcast information service digest of 
foreign uh, news. Orange was for Europe, as I recall. And uh, we used that information to help us gain uh, background in our target regions, um, see the culture, understand things like defense budgets that would be published in the newspaper would come in that. So all analysts used open source way, way back. Elliot has a chapter in a book where he traces the history of open source and I think the FBIS and its predecessors go back to the 40s. So it's been around a long time. And then fast forward, I did a lot of other things. And when I came to DHS to head the Collection and Requirements Division, I was in charge of the department's activities in all five intelligence disciplines. And open source was one of them. We had billets for my office that had been given to us by the Assistant Deputy Director of National Intelligence for open source, one Dr. Jardines, and they were unfilled. I was getting hauled up on the hill with regularity to say, you need to be doing something about this. And I quickly realized that we, especially in DHS, with its missions that are all hazards and all threats and supporting the state and local organizations, open source was critical. We worked quickly to bring on board those OSINT professionals. And then we established the first agency vision for open source and set up the DHS open source enterprise, which was very successful particularly uh, as we looked at some of the counterterrorism activities that were going on. Remember the, um, the shoe bomber and the printer cartridge and trying to translate and analyze the articles that were in the English language magazine that uh, Al-Qaeda was producing. So our, our team of OSINT professionals did a wonderful job and that's when I met Elliot, and we started talking about this for the future. It's just taken a while to get off the ground. Got it. And yeah, Elliot, I know you had an open source company for about a decade before you uh, joined DNI's office and helped stand up that open source center that we mentioned earlier in 2005. How has this OSINT business really evolved in your eyes? What's your experience been with it? So great question. The di discipline has matured uh, quite a bit, right? So early on, my involvement with or exposure to this thing called open source intelligence happened uh, as, a, as a reservist. I was an Army reservist assigned to uh, the 434th Military Intelligence Detachment Strategic, which uh, was a strange artifact, I guess would be the best way to put it of our World War II intelligence efforts. The Army had recruited a great deal of expertise across the country, university professors, whatnot, in the Office of Strategic Services. And some of that capability would become the CIA. The Army also wanted to retain that and created strategic intelligence detachments, 52 of them around the country, um, with unique expertise in particular areas, language and cultural experience. And so I was assigned to a unit that was actually affiliated with Yale University. And uh, we had been doing what would now be viewed as open source intelligence products on Asia. That was the area of expertise. And so the Army had decided the intelligence school at Fort Huachuca said, you know, there's this thing called open source intelligence. It's relatively new. We'd like to do a block of instruction for the basic intelligence officer course on OSINT and maybe a handbook. And so our unit was given that assignment given our experience um, with uh, publicly available information. Yale has top five libraries in the world. And so 
we were given that assignment and we put together a handbook and that was my introduction to the, the discipline. So early on, open source intelligence was a craft done by isolated crafts people. Mm. And there was very little in the way of infrastructure, certainly very little technology other than get on the internet and surf, and uh, very little in the way of policy or training. So we have progressed quite considerably since that point. The agencies all have open source efforts of varying sizes and complexity. Uh, and increasingly, the discipline is becoming more and more specialized and highly dependent on things like social network analysis and data science. Back in the day, it was done by one individual poking around trying to answer a question, and now we're sifting through huge volumes of data right. looking for patterns and gaps and whatnot. So it has uh, increasingly grown to be uh, far more complex and nuanced than early on. Sure. Yeah, I, just the sheer volume of information that's available in open media over the last decade plus is just, I'm not even sure if you could quantify it. I'm sure if people have tried. Um, I'm wondering if there was a, you, you know, you mentioned you met in 2008. Was there a specific moment, a specific conversation over drinks or something where you guys said, you know, we really need to start something up here, like, like a foundation to really drive this area forward more than it is perhaps right now, drive the conversation? So I, I don't know that we would point to a particular point, but um, just, again, looking at how the discipline has progressed, you, you have centers gravity for each of the disciplines, CIA for human, NSA for SIGINT, NGA for geospatial, and we really don't have that mm -hmm. uh, in the community in the sense that, yes, we have an executive agent for open source, but it's still early enough in the process. Right? The disciplines, the other disciplines have existed for a long, long time. And so we're still working through a, a lot of that. But nonetheless, right, when we look at things like professional development, so first of all, outside of CIA and DIA, there is no career field for open source. Mm -hmm. Most agencies, that's not an option. It's an assignment. You might be an all-source analyst or you might be a SIGINT analyst or a linguist and, and you're put in a billet in a position right, in an open source cell, but you don't come in as an open source officer. right? That's the career field at CIA is, is open source officer. And you come in and there's a very detailed professional development and career progression trajectory for that. It doesn't exist in most of the other agencies. And then likewise, we don't have a lot in the way of recognition, professional recognition for the discipline or opportunities for networking, that kind of thing. And so uh, the foundation will hopefully add some of that requisite infrastructure and even though we're outside of the intelligence community, again, with our focus being on uh, supporting the, the community, obviously we're looking to do things like recognize excellence at the individual level, at a unit level, and then with folks who are uh, big champions or advocates for the discipline uh, within the government because that's, that's critical to have that high-level support. The other thing is it's great when you're doing all sorts of important work and, uh, and you get attaboys from within your chain uh, of command. But then uh, if outside organization comes in and says, what you guys are doing is really special, that tends to uh, attract attention. And again, if, if it's a professional association by and for practitioners, that recognition of your peers is, uh, is particularly important and special. I'll add to that just a, a couple of things. You know, we've talked several times about the other intelligence disciplines, the other INS. One of the things that we have on our practitioners' committees 
first job jar is coming up with an understanding of, of what the subdisciplines are. Social media is getting a, a lot of, of play. Some people call it sock mint. We have uh, gray literature and ephemera, commercial imagery we talked about. And so we want to have an understanding across the community. Again, within each agency, they have their own training programs for advanced OSINT and tools and how you do that, or templates for how your, your product is produced. So we're not trying to say oh, everybody has to do it the same way, but in sharing across all of the community, it will help, again, have, have sort of common standards. So that, I think, is, is one important area. Another one is developing the tradecraft. When we talk about the vast amount of information one of the things that we used to say at DHS is, how do you know whether the International Herald Tribune is a good source and not news of the world? And OSINT professionals go through the tradecraft checklists to make sure that they are properly vetting their sources. To some extent, it's even harder for them because there is so much. Somebody who's got a human source, you've got the source. And you can, over time, figure out whether the source is trustworthy or not. But it, it's a large activity for an open source officer to go through and acquire that experience and that knowledge to be able to be comfortable in their judgments about the validity of the information that they're getting. All right. Well, we're going to take a short break. Again, I'm speaking with Barbara Alexander and Elliot Jardines about the unveiling of the OSINT Foundation. I'm Justin Doubleday, and you're listening to Inside the IC on Federal News Network. With the broadest range of breakthrough technology solutions, Microsoft Azure for Government is the choice for classified missions. Built for government agencies and their partners, unlock insights, build new capabilities, and empower collaboration in secret and top-secret environments. Microsoft Azure is built for national security missions, combining cloud-native capability with classified networks, hybrid and multi-cloud, to create a developer-friendly platform that is ready anywhere and secure everywhere. Visit MicrosoftFederal.com. That's MicrosoftFederal.com. Welcome back to Inside the IC on Federal News Network. I'm Justin Doubleday, and I'm speaking with Barbara Alexander and Elliot Jardines about their new OSINT Foundation. I'm wondering, you've mentioned how the OSINT tradecraft is relatively new, perhaps compared to, in its current form, compared to some of these more well-established INTs. Part of the issue is that there's not a dedicated community or a dedicated set of standards across the intelligence community. Barbara, you mentioned how you had had some issue finding folks to fill certain billets um, at one point for OSINT specialties. Why is it that OSINT, and maybe this is is, is just a misperception, is seem, seems a little bit under the radar compared to some of the other INTs, perhaps not as well-respected as some of the other INTs? And how, how does that change? We have often said that it's a lot sexier to talk about spooky collection disciplines. And I think historically, OSINT was used as sort of the additional information. You, you, you went to your traditional national technical means or human collection to get the real skinny on what was going on. And then you sort of got the additional stuff from OSINT. I think it was like that when I was a young analyst. As we have gone up and down with the budgets, there's been talk in the community that you can use OSINT to get at information about targets that aren't the so-called hard targets, the ones where we, we have to use the other national collectors to, to get the information. But it kind of goes in cycles. You know, and 
what we found over a number of events is the value of, of open source. I think back to when I was at DHS and on the National Open Source Committee, which was all of the intelligence organizations, and the earthquake in Haiti occurred. The Marines did amazing work in order to find the people who needed evacuation using open source information. Mm. Um, they could see sentiment analysis, for example, off of cell phones and that sort mm. of thing, knowing where people, because they were saying, I'm trapped. Mm -hmm. And so events like that bring great value and kind of encourage the community to not view OSINT as sort of the add-on, but sitting right there as one of the other disciplines that can be used to address national security events and national security missions. So I guess I would add, again, back to the issue of not having dedicated billets, not having a dedicated career field. There is a very robust career field at the agency, what's now called the Open Source Enterprise. Mm -hmm. uh, and so... The CIA. Yeah, the CIA, I'm sorry. Yep. Yeah, the CIA. And, and so key component of what I was looking to do when I was in the DNI is get funding and billets to each of the agencies. Because there are things we would want to centralize that would make sense, but centralizing all of OSINT doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. So I, centralizing OSINT, I think, is as good an idea as centralizing oxygen consumption. <laughs> well, no one would consider that, right, because it's just everywhere. And so open source in many ways is like that. And so while there are things, services of common concern that make sense to, to centralize, each agency has to have their own open source capability because they have unique authorities and they have unique requirements and policies and the, the targets they go after and whatnot. And so um, certainly CIA couldn't do it for DHS mm. and you wouldn't want FBI doing uh, OSINT collection for the Marine Corps. So the lack of positions and funding, dedicated funding streams for open source, many times open source has been taken out of hide, funding for activities, right? So I'm going to take some of my all source analysts and I'm going to create an OSINT cell, or I'm going to take my SIGINT linguists and I'm going to create an open source cell. The good news is we're moving past that point. Many agencies have a steady funding stream. Others are working that actively right now. Uh, in terms of, uh, of having what we call a program of record with dedicated billets and, and whatnot. I, I think also one of the travesties of open source is that we demonstrate over and over and over again the value of open source and that it's not just that background data. And so in this current Russian war against Ukraine, it, open source is preeminent in terms of sourcing, and it's probably all I should say about that. And so commanders have a very clear understanding of what open source can do for them. But then we tend to, we learn that in Iraq, we learn that in Afghanistan, we learn that in World War II, and we, we keep forgetting that lesson. The other part is I think it's a generational thing. Mm -hmm. Senior leadership has not been raised with a smartphone in their hand. Um, and so younger generations are far more familiar with the technology and understand its application. And then there's a risk avoidance nature of, of the community that also plays a bit, right? We Our acquisition cycles are years and open source tools come and go in, in a year or two, right? right? So I, I can think of exactly one tool that still exists today that existed when I started doing open source in the, in the 1990s. No other tool. What is an example of an open source tool today? How, how could we visualize that? So uh, there are lots and lots of tools out there. And so I, I will uh, politely decline to name any particular one um, because we are tool agnostic. Okay. Uh, right. But there are a whole host of tools that um, I can kind of describe some of them for, sure. for you, right? So uh, scraping tools, right. right? That you would point at particular things and then so that we can grab the data and look at it without having to go to that site over and over again. 
Um, and then there are many, many tools, data visualization tools, um, data science tools. We're moving increasingly towards, right, not, oh, can I find this tidbit of information, but I have so much information that I have to have some sophisticated means of sifting through that data in, in an effective manner. Uh, and so, all right, those scraping tools, data visualization tools, um, data science uh, capabilities to exploit that are, are all examples of the types of tools that are out there. Um, and so there are a number of commercial firms, some of whom actively do that capturing of data um, so that we don't have to go out and get it again. Um, and so that ideally, right, the, the less we're out there, um, the, the lower the risk profile is for us. Right. Uh, you mentioned earlier that there have has been a lot of commentary on OSINTs from folks who might not have experience in the OSINT uh, community within the, within the intelligence community. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, what, what are some of the criticisms that you think haven't been valid? What are some of the things that have given you pause? Um, how, how do you want to kind of change the, I guess, the conversation and the perception of OSINT from the outside? So I think nothing has been studied more than OSINT in the intelligence community. It, nothing has been studied more and none of the recommendations implemented, right? Mm. And so I was part of a study in the late 1990s called the Army Intel 21 Task Force. And we looked at, and there was an open source component to that. And we made recommendations that are still valid today, right? And so there's been a whole host of studies, many panels and symposia um, where open source is, has been discussed. Uh, and people are looking at it from there are many different interpretations of what open source is and isn't. And so we want to move beyond that and say, no, there is a codified definition for open source, public law 109-153. That is barring an update in the future. That is the current law. And so we will use that definition moving forward. And so uh, there's a lot of discussion about do we need a new open source agency, mm. right? Or where in the intelligence community should that agency exist? And certainly we are all for that necessary infrastructure, but our close in target is let's, let's get alongside those practitioners and let's share tradecraft. What are we learning, right? And what are the standards, right? So Barbara mentioned the sub-disciplines of open source, right? In, in signals intelligence, there are sub-disciplines, uh, imagery likewise, right? And so what are those sub-disciplines in open source? Well, print media, right? the way you go at exploiting print media is different than the way you exploit broadcast media, is different than the way you do social media. And then we have a category called gray literature, which are things that are not restricted but generally not of interest to the general public. So patent filings, the annals of the American society of whatever, mm. technical documents, brochures, those kind of things that are publicly available. No one's trying to hide them, but the general public, it's not Time Magazine. We have what we could call, Barbara mentioned it, ephemera, which are handbills, underground newsletters or newspapers, graffiti on the walls, things that aren't that are not long-term kind of things right there here, one minute gone another. Those are all subdisciplines that we need to decide. Are there five subdisciplines, six subdisciplines, seven, what are they? Is the virtual environment, right, virtual reality, things like meta, is that different than social media? And if so, what are the tradecraft standards? And the idea being to be able to say, these are the subdisciplines of open source. So if you're an open source practitioner, you should have a fundamental understanding of each of these, right? How you would go about exploiting those. You don't have to be an expert in them. We realize the vast majority of people are gonna be focused on social media, mm -hmm. right? But just like your podiatrist doesn't only know about 
the foot. They understand the circulatory system and, and the skeletal system because that impacts the foot. Just like that, an open source practitioner ought to have that. And so, right, we'd like to say, okay, we have polled our membership. We've worked this through on a practitioner committee. Here's the definition. We are adopting the legal definition, probably. And we've gone through this process of reviewing, and these are the sub-disciplines of open source. And by the way, this is how would we would add new disciplines or sub-disciplines to that um, and to have some sort of mechanism for determining, is this different enough that it should be considered a sub-discipline with unique tradecraft requirements? I think there's, there's a lot of OSINT classes out there these days that anyone can take, some more formal than others. Of course, there's, there's the OSINT hobbyist community out there that's really taken off, and it's really impressive to see folks be able to identify where someone is just based on you know a very bland background, perhaps, and based on where the sun is in the sky and, and how the shadows are falling and the light and things like that. I know we're talking about OSINT as a formal tradecraft within the intelligence community. To what extent do you think that can marry up with this OSINT culture that has really exploded within the past decade or so, thanks in large part to social media? Well, one thing I look at is um, comparing things like courses and whatnot to the Project Management Institute, PMI. PMI sets standards for project management professionals. Everybody and their cousin can offer a boot camp. PMI has the standards. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to get your PMP certification, you have to show uh, competency in the uh, standards that PMI has. So, you know, looking ahead, and again, we've, you know, we've, we've talked that the way a commercial company does due diligence using publicly available information is often called OSINT, mm. okay? But, but we focus on meeting an intelligence requirement and using publicly available information in that regard. So while lots of people are playing with you know, information that is, is out there, for our practitioners, they're going to be trained either on a basic level or at their agencies as they move forward in their career in the tradecraft standards that are required for the community to make sure that the, the source is properly vetted, that it's that the product is capturing the judgments in accordance with the standards that the, the DNI has laid out in intelligence community directives and so forth. So I, I would at least start there. Yeah, so uh, just to amplify uh, on, on Barbara's comments, Lots and lots of folks are doing exploitation of so the the as as you indicated the the sort of OSINT hobbyist community, which is fantastic. It is amazing to see what um, what's being produced these days, and um, there are many many examples. Right, Bellingcat is is one, and so right more power to them. I think it's fantastic. And in terms of how the community ought to interact. We should be paying a lot of attention to what's being done uh, and see what tradecraft, what TTPs, tactics, techniques, and procedures. What TTPs can we steal might be too strong. What TTPs can we liberate hmm. right from that hobbyist community? And, uh, you know, it's absolutely fascinating to, to see what, a, what crowdsourced OSINT can do. Um, and so uh, we certainly value that work because it really drives a lot of innovation and change. And so we're keenly interested in, in fostering those discussions while maintaining our focus on the intelligence community. And so somebody asked me, well, can anybody join the, the OSINT Foundation? And, and the answer is, if you are a U.S. citizen and you are not a registered or unregistered agent of a foreign power, you may join the OSINT Foundation. And we do that because, again, we're primarily focused on the intelligence community. And though some of the greatest OSINT practitioners are not 
American. Deep respect for my colleagues in other countries who do OSINT. I've learned a great deal from them. That just isn't going to work, right, in terms of, and, and again, not biting off more than we can chew. We want to ensure that, right, we're meeting the needs of the U.S. intelligence community. So um, we're keenly interested in, in interacting with and engaging with folks, hobbyists, folks from academia, commercial, law enforcement, uh, a whole host, you know, the civil affairs community, special operations community uh, is exploiting uh, publicly available information on a regular basis, and, and we'd love to engage with them. But again, our focus is going to be on standards for OSINT work within the intelligence community. Got it. Well, OSINT Foundation, it's been kind of around under the under kind of in the shadows, I guess, for a couple of years. And now you're out in the open. You know, what should we expect to see from you now that you're kind of out there here in the weeks and months ahead? Well, we have four committees that are being filled by OSINT practitioners and they will be rolled out in 30 days and then another 30 days, so it's going to take a while. Part of that, again, is to to do a few things well and then expand to the next. And we start with the practitioner committee. I've talked about them a lot because they are the, the subject matter experts. Are, the committees are capped at uh, seven people uh, so that they are true working organizations. And we say that if you are one of the seven people on the practitioner committee, we consider you to be one of the seven subject matter experts in the nation Hmm. on open source. And then moving to tradecraft and resources and policy and finally to certification. So you're going to be seeing, hopefully, the building blocks as we move to implement the mission statement of elevating the discipline and professionalizing it. Over time, we expect to have a newsletter and ultimately a professional journal. I think that's scheduled for next year to launch. And as Elliot said early on, you know, recognition. There are other great organizations that we're both members of that, you know, have the the yearly great big event where they recognize somebody who's, you know, got lifetime achievement in intelligence and wonderful, you know, black tie event and good food and lots of camaraderie. And uh, so we, we will be seeing things like that over time. So beyond those kind of professional journal newsletter, right, we'll be doing white papers, publishing standards, In many ways, we're simply adopting standards that the community has out there, right? Mm -hmm. The idea being to help promulgate that at the university level so that all of these intelligence studies programs, and we've partnered with the International Association for Intelligence Education. Um, They will have uh, one of their representatives sitting on our certification committee to, to say, what can we do? to take what is established practice standards in the intelligence community and, and push that down, right? So we produce, uh, OSINTERS produce open source information reports. And so there are standards for what those look like. And, and so promulgating those down, the basic concepts of open source as the intelligence community sees them, right, is something that if you want to join the intelligence community, we want to ensure that you have that. So Barbara mentioned professional recognition conferences. And during my time in the DNI, we established the DNI Open Source Conference. And that was a conference that was open to the general public to talk about open source. And we did it for a couple of years at the Ronald Reagan building. And it was a big event. We had all sorts of fascinating guest speakers come to talk. So we'd like to get back to something like that. That's a big lift. But Maybe initially some smaller, hey, we're going to do a half-day symposium on X topic or whatnot. Um, and so to, to have those, do webinars, things of, of that nature, eventually looking at professional certification, not so much for folks already government employees in the intelligence community because each agency has their own training process and whatnot, but at, a, at the very least a basic certification for folks incoming 
folks. And if you're a contractor, a government contractor, um, there is no standard for what open source training looks like other than the specific agency standard. Mm -hmm. But if you contrast that, Barbara mentioned the Program Management Institute, there's hardly any sizable federal contract that calls for program management that doesn't say, and the program manager will be certified as a program management professional. So ideally, we'd like to, to get to that point where we can share those best practices. The foundation does not have an interest nor the bandwidth to do the teaching. Mm -hmm. We don't want to do the teaching. There are a million places, as you rightly indicated, that do the training. We'd rather promulgate. These are the learning objectives. These are the standards. You all train to those standards so that we push that down. Because much of the training the intelligence community had is what we would call inherently governmental. Right. And so it's these are our specific authorities. This is how we do OSINT based on our mission and our authority. And these are our specific tools. Some are unique to that agency or they're custom tools. Some are commercially available tools. Right. We don't want to get into that. That's not at all our interest. But to say if you're graduating and you want to enter the intelligence community to do OSINT, then we'd like to have some sort of certification that says this person has a strong grasp of the OSINT fundamentals that they can apply then to that unique agency mission and those specific tools. All right. Well, a lot to keep an eye out for. And on the point about conferences, I don't think there's a better way to build a community in Washington than to offer a place where folks can get free food, coffee, especially the younger generation. <laughs> And maybe a happy hour afterwards. And it's it's OSINT, not OSINT. Correct. All right. Correct. Very good. Well, Barbara Alexander and Elliot Jardines, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Inside the IC, sponsored by Microsoft Federal. You can listen to this episode and past episodes anytime in your podcast feed. Search for Inside the IC on Podcast One, iTunes, or wherever you get your shows.